Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So uh, today's another recent events episode and we're going to get straight into it because there's plenty to get through. So first of all, there was a mysterious flash of radio signals detected. Now this isn't necessarily a new thing that's been detected uh, because it was actually detected for the first time a couple of years ago. But essentially what's happened here is whilst mapping radio waves across the universe, astronomers have basically stumbled upon um, a kind of a, a, a celestial object releasing um, giant bursts of energy. And it's not really comparable to anything that's ever been detected before. So it was originally uh, detected in March 2018, as I mentioned. And what, what's happening is it's basically beaming out radiation um, exactly three times per hour. And uh, in that moment when it's beaming out this radiation, it's actually the brightest source of radio waves that's detectable from the Earth. It's almost like a beacon just out there, which is quite a, an interesting thought, isn't it? Just something just flashing radio waves a couple of, well, three times an hour. Quite weird. And uh, the astronomers think that it may be various things, including the remnant of a collapsed star, uh, either a dense neutron star or a dead white dwarf star with a strong magnetic field, or obviously it could be something else entirely, which we've never seen before. And obviously, as with any of these things, there's always the possibility that it could be some kind of um, you know, device or some kind of technology that placed there intentionally or, or otherwise, obviously. There is no actual evidence for that at this point, but until we know what it is, everything's on the table. But the object was first spotted by a university student working on his undergraduate thesis, and then later it was kind of picked up by astrophysicist Natasha Hurley-Walker, who led the investigation using a telescope in the West Australian outback known as the Murchison Wide Field Array. 
And uh, she said, quote, the pulse comes every 18.18 minutes like clockwork, unquote. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? 18.18. Now, it's kind of tempting with things like that. My initial sort of thing was like, wow, 18.18, that seems like two 18s together. Is like, is there a possibility that that's intentional? But I suppose it's it's kind of a bit wishful thinking, perhaps, um, to think that it may be, because the chances that an extraterrestrial race is going to be measuring things in minutes as we understand them is extremely slim um, unless obviously this device is specifically broadcasting to us intentionally but again I, th I think we're we're kind of going down some some pretty uh, distant paths there of, of speculation but um Either way, it's quite interesting that this thing just pulses with a vast amount of radio energy every now and again. But the, the most likely, I suppose you could say, explanation is that is uh, the possibility of what's called a magnetar. Sounds like some kind of evil villain from a, a comic book when I was a kid. But um, a magnetar is basically, uh, quoting uh, Hurley Walker here, quote, it's a type of slowly spinning neutron star that has been predicted to exist theoretically but nobody expected to directly detect one like this because we didn't expect them to be so bright somehow it's converting magnetic energy to radio waves much more effectively than anything we've seen before unquote so as i say it's an interesting one um but i mean me personally i i do tend to think there's probably some kind of more you know prosaic explanation for it often is the case with these things you know you hear about some kind of new signal coming from space and it turns out to be some kind of star you know anomaly of a collapsed star doing something that was unexpected you know things like that um, but it's still fascinating isn't it like that that's kind of how i look at these types of things you know the more we learn about the universe the more you know the, the more the bigger picture starts to emerge and if we're looking at you know, the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligences existing, you know, the more we learn about the universe, the, the more likely it is that we'll be able to understand the context that extraterrestrial intelligences may be, you know, existing within the universe. So always fascinating to keep an eye on these types of things. But as I say, um, we'll just have to wait and see till more information is available. But what it really made me think of is that if we're detecting things like that now, so there's always new bits like that popping up in the news every now and again, you know, of a, an object or a light source or a, an energy source out there somewhere in the universe. And we're detecting those kinds of things on a fairly regular basis and figuring them out and getting to the bottom of them. And then there's the unexplained ones like Oumuamua, which nobody can really, you know, come up with a proper explanation for. And we're going to see more and more of those things as our technology gets better and better. And um, yeah, as I say, that bigger picture of the universe that we live in is, is slowly but surely, um, you know, becoming a bit clearer. And what it really made me think was, what are we going to be able to detect when the James Webb telescope is fully operational? Um, which is worth quickly going into as well. The James Webb telescope is now up and running, essentially. It's, it's arrived at its end point. It's managed to go through all of the various checkpoints of, of things switching on and, and sorting themselves out along that journey. And it's now a million miles away from the Earth, which is just quite amazing to think, isn't it, that this incredible technological device that we managed to launch, I say we, you know, humans, we managed to put this thing up there, send it off to a 
a million miles away from the earth and we're now still communicating with it even though it's so far away so really quite a you know an amazing thing that the james webb telescope you know we managed to do that as a human race i think it's something we could all be a little bit proud of you know despite some things that perhaps we can't be proud of that humans have have, have done over the years you know there's some certain things that you can that you can just get behind and say look i'm really glad that we did that as a human race we should all be proud of it and um what i was which really made me think this particular story about the uh, the the radio wave source out there in space is imagine what we'll be able to detect with when the james webb starts to actually send data back which i think is going to be roughly about six months we've got a bit of a wait until everything is fully working and, and detecting data and then processing it and sending it back and then that's going to be interpreted so we've, we've got a little while to go but it's just another exciting thing to keep an eye on for 2022 which you know, it's funny because as 2022 kicks off, more and more people who, who, you know, perhaps you could say are in a position to know are really asserting that this year is going to be a huge year for the UAP topic. So that's kind of every time I see another tweet saying that, I'm like, OK, what's going on behind the scenes? You know, I mean, I've heard, you know, about probably about 10 people so far, you know, we're talking the Lou Elizondo's and people on that kind of level are all suggesting that big things are happening this year. And it's kind of not surprising when you consider how many different leads there are to follow. But anyway, moving swiftly on. So Gary Nolan uh, has done a new interview recently. And uh, this was a, a really interesting interview. Uh, Gary Nolan for anybody who is not aware, um, is a professor of pathology at Stanford University, and um, he's I've talked about him on the podcast quite a bit, um, so you most likely already have heard a bit of that, and you may be aware of Gary Nolan's work anyway. Um, but essentially, um, he is he has authored over 300 research articles um, he's known for his groundbreaking like world-leading work in, into cancer and immunology, and um, He's also known outside of that for his analysis of um, materials from um, unidentified flying objects. Recently published a paper with Jacques Vallée, um, which suggests the best ways to actually analyse um, anomalous materials and actually also uh, contains some analysis of various different materials that have already been um, analysed, which were found to have some very unusual isotopic ratios. Um, so I did already talk about that in a previous uh, episode, so I'm not going to go into it into too much detail again, but um, definitely interesting to check out the work of Gary Nolan if you're interested in that side of things. So if you just type in uh, Gary P. Nolan or Dr. Gary Nolan, I'm sure you'll be able to find plenty of information. And obviously anything that uh, in the future that comes up to do with his work, I'll definitely be talking about it on the podcast. So... Before I get into this recent interview, it's also worth mentioning that Gary Nolan has now just joined the Galileo Project, which is a welcome addition, and um, I'll be really interested to see what comes of, of the, the collaboration with the Galileo Project. It does kind of make me wonder, if I'm being completely honest, how many people are they going to have in the Galileo Project? Because there's a lot of them by this point, and now I'm not complaining, in some ways because 
you know, I've seen a, a couple of funny tweets about this on social media, uh, on on the sort of more positive side. People saying it's a bit like the UAP Avenger Squad, you know, like um, all the superheroes of of UAP studies all in one place. Um, but on, on the slightly more downside, there have been a few people kind of jokingly commenting that everybody by this point has pretty much joined the Galileo project, which is kind of true now there was somebody posted something saying along the lines of my mum has just joined the galileo project you know which made me chuckle um but you know there are a lot of them there and i just trust at this point that avi Loeb knows what he's doing and um you know there'll be enough people um kind of holding the reins who know what they're doing here and to manage to keep all these various different people in check and 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 have have such a wide range of people involved in a way that's constructive and worth doing because obviously there is the danger of that too many cooks spoil the broth but i think the thing to consider you know when i see people commenting on the fact that there's so many people in the galileo project at this point the thing to consider is that they're there basically as advisors you know, they're there as a research affiliate. They're not a core member. So I think the core members will be steering the ship and the contributions will be drawn from all of these various sources, which is the more expertise you've got on board, the better, isn't it? So I do understand when people are saying, you know, there's a lot of people involved by this point, but at the same time, it can't be a bad thing as long as it doesn't descend into one of those too many cooks spoil the broth. But as I said, I'm sure Avi Loeb knows what he's doing. Much uh, much smarter guy than me. So, and like I say, overall can't complain at all because it's definitely one of the most exciting things for 2022, in my opinion, to keep an eye on the Galileo project just in general. And uh, yeah, moving on from that. So um, Gary Nolan then has just done this new interview with um, a lady called Mawa. And uh, I can't pronounce her surname, so I'm not even going to attempt to do it, but it was for the Soft Robotics podcast. Um, and it was a really interesting listen. A lot of points kind of being reiterated that I've already talked about from other Gary Nolan interviews and, and tweets and things. Um, but a few a few key points there that I thought I'd go through because some of them were sort of fleshed out a bit more than previously, a few more details added in than I'd previously heard. So I thought it was worth going into. So here's a few bits and pieces then. So we've got, first of all, the materials that have been analysed are not conclusively extraterrestrial. And I think this is really worth keeping in mind because the fact is, there were a number of molten material fragments, molten metal fragments analysed as a part of that peer-reviewed paper that was released very recently. And they do have isotopic ratios which are not found naturally. But the key point, and I think this is a point that some people do tend to you know, overlook slightly, is they, they could have been made on this earth. It's not as though humans can't make materials with these isotopic ratios because we can. But the question is, why and who? Because why would you do that? Why would you make these materials with isotopic ratios which don't have a use as far as we know? And, you know, so it's not as it's not as, as straightforward as, as just saying, oh, look, you know, Gary Nolan says that these definitely can't be made on the earth because that's missing the nuance, I think. We have to bear in mind that they could have been made on this earth, but there's not currently a natural process that we know of that would create them naturally. And humans can do it, but it's extremely costly. 
Um, so what what Nolan says is that the cost of creating these materials would be enormous. So they're usually sold in tiny milligram amounts, which cost a lot of money. So the large quantities of several pounds of material that has these ratios would be into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to produce. So why would anyone want to create them and then dump them as part of some kind of elaborate scheme? It doesn't really make sense. And so it's a mystery, basically, you know? And, and the only thing that you can do when you've got a mystery like that is investigate it further. And this is what I really like about Gary Nolan's approach, is that that's what he's all about. That's what he's trying to do. And, and Gary Nolan in this interview as well, he says that he's hoping to receive funding from the new UAP office to actually carry out his work and carry on and develop his work. Um, so far, he says that he's, um, he's funded all of his research himself because obviously bearing in mind his research that he does is actually a, a, a bit of a different field to exactly um, what he does in his day-to-day -day work, you know, which is to do with the, you know, finding cures for cancer and, 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 and pathology and things like that. And what he actually wants is now to get funding to access more of these materials and also more interesting materials as well because he has Gary Nolan in the past has been um, working with the CIA and various other government groups to get access to some of these materials but one of the things he talks about in this interview is he doesn't know how much of the material he's had so he points out that he doesn't know if he's had a small portion of the material a sample or if he's had the whole thing and that makes it very difficult to determine the origins and the function of what that material could have been. So it'll be very interesting to see how Gary Nolan's studies into these materials continues and um, how it unfolds over the course of this next year, especially now he's involved with um, the Galileo project and he's also looking to get involved with um, the UAP office, which um, will be very interesting. We'll keep an eye on all of that and obviously I'll be talking about it as, uh, the, as the weeks and months go along of this year. So I've got a few clips that I want to play and then I'll talk about each one a little bit and uh, you know break down uh, some of the bits that are being mentioned. So first clip them. I mean, when humans watched birds fly, from thousands of years ago, they said, we want to fly too. How can we do it? And eventually we figured out how to. So if we can see these objects, whether they're natural phenomenon, whether they're some other civilization or what have you, it's almost like the, the term, you know, laying of breadcrumbs. Somebody is showing us something. Something is showing us a possibility that maybe we can think about how to access. So that was a particularly interesting little snippet that I thought I'd go through. Because I've heard about things like the gifting hypothesis in the past of, you know, perhaps these these vehicles crash, you know, on the earth uh, to sort of gift us technology or give us ideas to our own technologies, ways that we can develop things. It's never really made a lot of sense to me that. But... You know, because if there are others out there, why would they just crash the technology for us to find it? I, I, it just doesn't really add up when you think that there probably 
way, way more advanced than us. The likelihood that they're a similar level of advancement to humans, you know, despite the the vastness of time and, and the possibility of that they would have just developed at roughly the same time as us somewhere out there in the universe seems extremely slim. And if that is the case, it's most likely their technology is so advanced that we just would have no idea um you know how to operate it it'd be the same kind of thing as i've heard a couple of people actually mention this week that it'd be like trying to show an iphone to a cow you know the cow's not going to have a clue what to do with that iphone it doesn't even know how to begin you know it doesn't even have language to be able to communicate you know what is this you know there's absolutely nothing that that a cow is going to be able to do with an iphone but to us it's the most useful thing that we can come up with so i kind of feel like if they were going to um, if they were going to gift us things, that'd it'd be essentially like dropping a, an iPhone into a cow's field. You know, it'd be so unknown that we wouldn't have any, any, wouldn't be able to do anything with it anyway. I suppose you could argue that perhaps they actually make some kind of device which is only just a bit ahead of of where human technology is, and then drop it down so that we can then, you know, but I mean, that just seems like we're getting more and more far-fetched. I mean, I understand some people think that that's very likely, so I'm not bashing the idea, but to me, it just never really resonated, you know, but this is kind of a similar way of looking at it, which makes a lot more sense to me, because it's more demonstrating that something is possible, and then leaving us to figure out how to achieve that. So, I mean, either that or it can be explained by some kind of natural phenomenon, you know, which in in some cases is equally as fascinating because, you know, we as humans witnessed birds fly, as Gary Nolan says there in the interview. And, you know, from witnessing birds fly, we realized that it is possible to fly through the sky if you get the, the right balance of weight to lift and all the rest of it and propulsion and so on that we might be able to fly as well now if there was nothing that flew on this earth at all it would have been a lot longer of a journey it would have been a lot more difficult for humans to imagine being able to eventually make an aircraft but you know we saw birds flying and that gave us an indication that okay if we work on certain things maybe we can fly too and you could say the same thing about various other things that we have on, on you know, human inventions. A lot of it is inspired by what we witness in the natural world. And if we're now witnessing some kind of natural plasma phenomenon or something like that, um, it could be that we can do the same thing. Just as one uh, one time, the thought of humans going flying up in an aircraft seemed, you know, like magic. And, oh, you know, birds can do it, but we're never going to be able to do it. And some people thought differently and thought, you know what, if the birds can do it, there's probably a way we might be able to do it if we keep working on this problem. We were able to do it. If there's some kind of natural phenomenon, some kind of, you know, um, some kind of new energy source or something like that, and if we're witnessing that, we also will be able to to achieve that possibly at some time and it could be that if there are some extraterrestrial others influencing what happens on this planet even their presence alone gives us some kind of indication that you know what maybe we could do that we just got to figure out how to do it and things like the tic tac if you know that the tic tac can move in ways that seem impossible it means that actually those those ways of moving actually aren't impossible after all. And all we've got to do is figure out how to get from point A to point B. So 
yeah, I mean, I could talk about that for an hour probably because that's a, a really interesting point and there's lots of different ways to come at that uh, particular topic. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting little um, mention there from Gary Nolan, so I wanted to, to go into that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's probably a lot more complex than all UAP can be explained by atmospheric phenomenon. You know, or all UAP can be explained by an extraterrestrial civilization. You know, it, it's probably, like I said, it's probably so complicated that it's beyond our beyond our uh, comprehension at this point. Um, I think there's probably a, a combinations of things that we never really even considered so far. Um, it certainly seems like the more the more we understand, the less we understand because it turns out to be way more complicated. Um, you know than, than anybody really thought but yeah that that particular concept of of witnessing something as a human race you see something happen in the universe that we inhabit and you go ah okay so that must be possible and because we're witnessing it happen right there we can't do it yet so how do we get from where we are now to being able to achieve that thing? What steps do we need to put into place? You know, who are the best minds in the world that we can get to work on this problem? Um, and yeah, you're basically reverse engineering something without ever having set hands on it in, in that way. So another uh, little clip that I wanted to play uh, from there was a bit of speculation. And what I really like about Gary Nolan uh, in particular when you hear him in interviews and things um, is that even though he's got a very, very scientific approach to looking into these things, which is all about, you know, doing things properly according to the scientific method. So investigating something, coming up with a hypothesis, testing it out, and then publishing your results in a proper peer-reviewed way, which is, I believe, is, you know, the way to, to actually do things in a credible way that's going to be acceptable to the academic community the people who are deep thinkers who don't just want to hear um you know f f fanciful stories and things like that we're talking about actually proper investigations and and again one of the things uh, that that's always kind of made me sit up and listen when gary nolan talks is that one of the ways that he, i first heard about him was that he was investigating the um the chilean alien body supposed alien body that was in one of stephen greer's films and um he actually sequenced the dna and and, and investigated the uh the, the body scientifically and came to the conclusion that it actually was of earthly origin so he's, he's not one of these people who's just trying to say everything's an alien and blah 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 he's a very rational approach and, and a, a results-based data-based uh, way of looking at the ufo topic um and that's the kind of people that we want but having said that he's still quite willing to speculate you know there's I think sometimes people can get a bit scared of, of speculating because they don't want to be quoted as having said something that sounds a bit wacky or whatever. But I don't. I really don't see a problem with speculating, and you probably know that because I speculate all the time on, on on my podcast. You know, which I think is perfectly understandable and you know fine thing to do at the end of the day, as long as you're clear about when it's speculation and when it's not, because. You know, I see things on Twitter all the time about people saying, uh, you know, I witnessed a craft in my bedroom and it's clearly a lens flare on the camera and they're saying, look, you can tell this craft's got occupants because when you zoom in and it's just a blurry lens flare and it's, it's you know, it's embarrassing. That that kind of speculation and that kind of being, being adamant that something is the case and presenting speculation or, or just essentially presenting nonsense as factual data is not the way to do it. 
Um, you know, but if if you're kind of looking into things rationally, database, scientifically, but also aside from that, you're willing to speculate. I think that's great because speculation sometimes is how you stumble across new ideas. You know, if you're not willing to throw ideas around, you know, it's more difficult to to kind of open up new ways of thinking. So, as I say, I like a bit of speculation now and again, as long as it's clear when it's speculation and when it's not. Speaking of which, let's play the next clip. If I were to speculate from a science fiction standpoint, I might say that the um, materials that we see ejected are a form of exhaust from an engine that has said, I don't need this anymore. Uh, I've, I've used it. I've used it for what it's good for. I'm going to get rid of it. It's kind of a, maybe you think of it as a fuel. The fuel is starts as one form and then it gets manipulated by some process we don't understand. And when they're done with it, it gets ejected just like we do with a car, right? We have fuel, gasoline, it gets ejected in the form of hydrocarbons uh, and uh, water if you have a good catalytic converter. So we don't care about spewing this into our atmosphere. Maybe these things don't care about offloading a little bit of metal every once in a while as long as they're not dropping it on somebody's head. (laughs) So what he's talking about there is um, a lot of these materials that um, Gary Nolan is investigating are essentially uh, people have witnessed them dropping out of some kind of glowing object. Um, so there's been a number of them uh, that he has actually analysed that that have that have been found in in that way, um, and it does appear that some kind of molten metal dropping out the bottom of UFOs is a thing. You know that's a thing that happens, and what he's doing is speculating about um, you know why that may be. And if these things are indeed, um, you know, craft, extraterrestrial craft of some type, um, you can speculate, which again, I think is very important that he says at the beginning of that clip that I just played, you know, if I was to speculate, this is, this is what, you know, it could be. And it's an interesting idea that perhaps, you know, some element of molten metal is used in the propulsion system, or perhaps there's some kind of circulating molten metal, um, and, occasionally they have to spit some of that molten metal out to to do to do something who knows what really really interesting i i mean i don't have a, a any kind of astrophysics background engineering background or anything but um yeah it, it did make me think maybe there's a process going on within that molten metal that is some process as part of the propulsion system the energy generation system um that that is changing the isotopic ratios within the metal and at some point once the isotopic ratios have been changed by these processes beyond a certain point then they need to be refreshed and they have to spit out the the old molten metal or something it could be part of the cooling system it could be part of the the actual fuel system itself i mean who knows you know like i say we we are into speculation territory here but i thought it was interesting to hear uh, gary nolan's speculation as somebody who's actually investigated these materials himself so it'd be interesting to see what you guys think of that as well if anyone's got any thoughts let me know and because the thought of of what process could be taking place there which spits out molten metal hmm Definitely an intriguing one. Anyway, so there's one more clip to play. Let's uh, get through that. Physicists who are, uh, 
you know, uh, they're serious physicists, but I think mainstream physicists would consider them fringe, that say these are waveguides, right? That this is a way that you can uh, structure uh, electrical, electromagnetic impulses, and this is a great thing for your audience to think about. Uh, these metamaterials are somehow structuring things that allow you to alter gravity. I don't know, right? I mean, there's metamaterials that you're developed up at Berkeley nearby that can make things appear invisible to certain wavelengths. I mean, this is reality. It's published in Nature and Science. It's, you know, there's ways you can alter at least wavelengths to make things appear to certain frequencies uh, invisible. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're at the only very beginning of our understanding of what physics really is, uh, that there's really a lot more to be understood about how you can compose materials to accomplish novel uh, functions. And again, your audience is very well aware of the kinds of things that you can do at the nanomaterials level. You put a, an atom of this here, an atom of that there, an atom of that there, and now you have a qubit, right, for quantum processing. You put different kinds of atoms together in different ways, and you can get exotic particles in materials. You know, you can get plasmons and all kinds of other things that can be used in ways that 20, 30 years ago would have been thought impossible. So another really interesting clip there, and um, it kind of links back into the the piece of um, bismuth magnesium, which Linda Moulton Howard been in possession of for, for quite some time. And um, there's some speculation with that piece of material that um, if you blast it with terahertz frequencies, um, it actually what Linda Moulton Howe describes is it can behave as a, or there is speculation that it could behave as a lifting body. So Linda Moulton Howe in a recent Theories of Everything interview was talking to uh, Kurt Jaimungle about this. Um, and there was a bit of controversy to, towards the end of that interview, which I've already addressed and spoken about a little bit. Um, but the point is, there was a lot of other bits mentioned as to the origins of that material, the 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 history of that material, how Linda Moulton Howe kept hold of it for years and years, um, before eventually um, actually allowing it to be sold uh, to cover the, the, what she describes as the expenses of having investigated it and uh, held on to it for so long. Um, so she sold it, I believe the figure was $30,000, and she sold a, a part of it uh, to, to the... Uh, the army i think it was who were going to be looking at uh, that material and blasting it with those terahertz frequencies and um, to see what happened and so on but apparently linda moulton how actually kept a, a fragment of it or a part of it um, and the rest of it was was sold uh, to to be investigated with the uh, better quality um, instruments and so on and the results of all of those uh, investigations, I, I don't think, are readily available at the moment. Um, but what Gary Nolan's doing here is speculating that that um, material uh, could potentially be uh, some kind of meta-material, whether that's uh, created by extraterrestrial intelligences. We don't know for sure. Uh, but there's certainly no... Again, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with some of the materials which appear to have been molten metal that spat out of, of glowing objects. There's no processes naturally on this planet that we know of that can create them in that way. And there's no processes that uh, that are widely available to the public that you can create them 
um, you know, for any purpose. Uh, it is possible that, again, they could have been made on Earth, but it would have been extremely costly to do so, and there is no actual, you know, known usage for them, especially at the point when this particular piece, the magnesium bismuth um, piece, was actually uh, first discovered there definitely wasn't any way of of, uh, of creating that and um, but uh, the actual results of, of the investigations into it didn't cause it to levitate as far as i'm aware obviously if they did it'd be an absolutely enormous story that everybody be talking about so and um, we've not got quite got to that stage yet but these materials are definitely very interesting and it does tie into a lot of other things as well, like Bob Lazar talked about um, some of the things that he mentioned when he first came on the scene, you know, well, decades ago now, um, was that he couldn't understand how some of these materials were made. Um, you know, the smooth, there was no joins, no seams, no rivets on some of the craft that Bob Lazar, uh, you know, allegedly witnessed. Uh, but then years and years later, that could be then described as being 3D printed. So it always amazes me how the advancement of materials um, changes our perception of what's possible. You wouldn't have thought that a smooth, perfectly um, no joins, no rivets, etc. type of object could even be made, you know, 30 years ago. Whereas now, that, that wouldn't even be difficult to do with a 3D printer. Obviously it would if you were trying to do it on the scale of some kind of vehicle, but... Um, the technology exists to create that whereas you know it, it didn't when bob lazar was talking about those types of things that's not to say that it, it validates what bob lazar is saying but it does make you think as our our material technology advances there may be certain you know characteristics of, of uap that aren't as far off anymore you know it goes back to what i was talking about earlier Anyway, moving on from that, because we've got a lot of other bits and bobs to get through. I mean, I could I could talk for hours just about Gary Owen and his work, really, but um, let's move on. So, next thing is a coast-to-coast uh, -coast AM uh, interview with Jim Semivan. Uh, in particular, the Jim Semivan bit, but also on there was John Ramirez as well. Um, I've actually not got round to checking out the John Ramirez uh, part yet. Um, Coast to Coast AM have a have a like a subscriber type model where you have to pay to listen to the interviews, which I'm not a big fan of that particular model personally. Um, so I've not actually listened to the uh, Jim Semivan part, but Joe Mergier. Uh, God bless him, has uh, transcribed the, a, a lot of it and all the key points in a big long 60-something tweet thread on Twitter. So if you want to check out what was said in a bit more detail, go to uh, Joel Merger's Twitter page and you'll be able to see that there. Um, so Jim Semivan basically retired in 2007 after a 25-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. And at the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service. Uh, Jim served multiple overseas and domestic tours, along with senior management positions in CIA headquarters. And he is the recipient of the agency's Career Intelligence Medal. And he went on to become a, a member of TTSA. So a bit of background, just in case anybody's not familiar with Jim Semivan. Uh, it, you know, basically an extremely credible individual has held very responsible positions in the cia 25 years in the cia so we're not talking here you know i think sometimes when people talk about people who are cia and people who, are, who worked for the defense intelligence or whatever it might be um 
you know, that could be a year, that could be two years, you know, they got a job there to sort of kill a bit of time and then they went on and did something else. You know, there's a big difference between that and somebody like Jim Semivan, who was involved at the highest levels for decades. You know, it, it's um, it's worth bearing those nuances in mind, you know, and obviously there's been a number of people come out recently with, um, you know, intelligence backgrounds and so on, but you've got to look at what they actually did and, in my opinion anyway, you know, what is their direct area of expertise? Where is the line between things that they have learned as knowledge from, you know, directly being involved in that and speculation? And I think that's always very interesting to, to check out, to get to the bottom of what's fact and what's opinion or speculation. But with Jim Semivan, you can assume that he's he's in a position to know a lot more than most um you know this is like i said you know decades very very high up um uh, you know a distinguished career within the cia so some of the points that got mentioned then if we just go through a few and i'll talk about them as we go so first of all so Jim Semivan actually mentions about a specific experience of his own that he and his wife actually went through and um, he mentions that um, he doesn't like to discuss it because, quote, my wife and I are still being studied, looked at by another group. Uh, apparently was a, a classic abduction scenario to it, but he calls it an experience. And it was while they were in their bedroom in the middle of the night, beings show up. And it became apparently became upsetting later because there were physical things that happened to my wife and I, and it was upsetting. They have documentation for all of that. It was a short experience and the most amazing thing that he'd ever experienced. No question in his mind that it was real. He also says, my wife is a psychologist, so I know the difference between liminal states, hypnagogic states, and vivid dreams and lucid dreams. This was nothing like that at all. This was actually opening your eyes and seeing it in front of you and going holy cow what is that so i thought that was really interesting and i found this uh, quote about jim semivan um which is worth quickly going into um, which is actually an excerpt from uh, his um foreword for secret machines and this is what he said in his foreword quote as for my formal introduction to the phenomenon, as we know it in today's context, it came suddenly and unexpectedly. I will not attempt to go into the experience here, but I will say that it was one of life's game changers for both my wife and me. The experience was simultaneously frightening, perplexing, frustrating and absurd. It was also both physical and emotional, although I am undecided as to whether there was any spiritual addendum. Almost 30 years later, I'm still not sure what to make of the experience. What I do know, however, is that this event changed my view of what constitutes our collective version of reality, unquote. So that is is uh, the original kind of context that I heard about uh, his, his experiences. And as you can tell from what I just read out there, he goes into it in a little bit more detail um, in, in the uh, the recent interview. So he says it was a classic abduction scenario to it. Beings showed up and um, 
there was absolutely no question in his mind that it was real and it didn't seem like a dream it didn't seem like any kind of liminal state hypnagogic states and he was literally opening his eyes and seeing something directly in front of them and there were um, distressing physical effects for them and the interesting point there is that they're actually still being um, monitored apparently um, it, it seems as though um, that there were perhaps some studies some experience of studies are actually ongoing which is monitoring perhaps their blood their dna their, their brain who knows we know that there have been studies on experiences brains and he also goes on to talk about um john alexander in 2014 or 15 um john alexander interviewed uh, Jim Semivan and his wife, and a group of people um, that, that George Knapp knows apparently, um, possibly Kit Green and Gary Nolan and other members of what they call the Invisible College, um, came to his house and took his blood, etc. So it seems as though there is some kind of efforts underway there um, to, to keep tabs on people who have had significant experiences and, and monitor certain things. And apparently that is still going on so george knapp also then asks if the phenomena are still being witnessed if that's still going on and jim semivan says that it is but it hasn't been happening too much lately the last time was around about four years ago when apparently a hooded figure messenger came to their bedroom to tell him that his dear friend um, had just passed away um, apparently the, the dear friend was uh, somebody called Mark Mansfield who was the best man at his wedding and the public relations director at the CIA who was very ill and the hooded figure looked at him and he looked at the hooded figure and that's all pretty terrifying uh, the thought of a hooded figure uh, appearing in your, your bedroom to tell you that one of your friends has passed away is clearly not a particularly pleasant thing to uh, envisage uh, but this is what uh, Jim Semivan says that he experienced which is um, quite bizarre but he also says that he wasn't the least bit afraid which is obviously strange and again it's um, it's something that we hear about quite repeatedly that you, you, you actually emotionally respond in ways that you don't expect and this is something that's come up time and time again when I've been looking at people's experiences is that what he did um, was it didn't didn't dawn on him to do anything except go back to bed and he told his wife the next morning and he called some people who told him to try and make contact with it and he said he didn't want to make contact with it because it looked terrifying which is pretty understandable if, in my opinion but yeah um the other comment that he goes on to next is uh, george knapp asks um, do you think cia had an ongoing interest blue book closed its doors uh, 53 years ago in 1969 you said you thought that that wasn't the end of the government's interest and jim semivan mentions 1947 and the twining memo uh, and this is something that's real and not fictitious cia formed in 1947 and they do not overlook anything he says he would be stunned if the CIA and the Air Force and maybe another government agency didn't take this extraordinarily seriously. They probably hid it and it's been going probably since then. Where is it? There's a lot of speculation as to where it is. Um, and he says to actually to speak to John Ramirez about this and foyer. 
which is something that John Ramirez has mentioned recently in his presentation that he did on Project Unity was which departments we should be looking at to submit FOIA requests to specifically and that perhaps there are some departments that people haven't um, really dug into yet uh, which may yield good results. Now, I'm due to go back and re-watch that presentation, actually, because um, sometimes with those types of things, I have to watch them a couple of times. There's so much information in there. Um, so uh, I think I'm going to go back and re-watch that particular interview because, again, there is some controversy about John Ramirez, um, but let me just tell you this. Um, from my experiences of having spoke to John Ramirez um, privately, offline, uh, I've never had him as a guest on the podcast. If I'm honest, there's, there's some people where I don't necessarily think that I want to have them on the podcast talk um, because they've been on so many other podcasts and I think you get to the point where if there's nothing really new to bring to the table, I don't want to just do things like that for the sake of it. But... Um, I have spoken to John Ramirez offline and he's actually helped me with a couple of things that I've been looking into that are totally unrelated um, to what I'm talking about today. Um, but John Ramirez um, is, is a lovely guy, very, very helpful, uh, willing to take out his own time to help somebody like me, which is you know very much appreciated. And from the things that we've discussed, um, I have absolutely no reason to doubt who he is, who he says he is. I think that's beyond any doubt anyway by this point. Um, but um, he's, he's a very knowledgeable guy uh, about certain things, especially to do with the intelligence community because that's his direct area of knowledge. Um, but obviously there are a lot of speculative areas that he goes into as well, um, which is a slightly different thing to the direct knowledge that he has. And um, But anyway, going back to what I was talking about there is that the presentation that he does on Project Unity is from the direct place of knowledge that I'm talking about. The presentation is literally about the intricacies and the origins of the intelligence community in the US, which is what John Ramirez knows all about. And then towards the end of the presentation, he goes into some more speculation, which again, I don't think is a problem. Because as long as it's labelled as speculation, which in, in that particular interview, he very clearly does uh, label it as speculation. I don't think there's an issue with that. But anyway, moving on. So another point that was mentioned then is that he says, uh, ask John Ramirez about this and for you. Um, the problem is, just like with Lou and ATIP, public affairs folks don't know about it. UFO office, no, we don't know about that. Rank and file won't know. It will be very well hidden. But once again, the CIA doesn't miss a beat. Which is a good point. He's basically saying that these these offices, these areas that are looking into UFOs and strange events and weirdness within uh, the intelligence community, they're not going to let the you know the the press relations officers and the people who are actually in a public facing role, like your Susan Goffs and people like that. You know they're not even going to be aware of some of this stuff for plausible deniability reasons. If they can be asked about something that they know exists and they have to lie about it every day on a podium, um, that's going to be really hard to keep up. If you don't have a clue about it and you can actually say, you know, factually, look, I don't know about anything like that that exists, then it's a lot easier to keep that facade up, which is a, an interesting point. But the, what he's actually saying there is that the CIA aren't just going to ignore stuff like that, which could be absolutely game-changing. Um, so, of course, they're going to look into it. And he says the US found out Russians were dealing with paranormal in the 1920s and 30s and continued. Once the government finds that out, 
they have no other choice but to investigate it and find out as much as you can about it. You have to stay close or better than your opponent. Back to UFOs. So a very interesting point uh, there because, you know, if we know that the Russians are looking into these kind of things, which they are, there's obviously documentation going back decades that the Russians are looking into not just UFOs, but paranormal things, remote viewing and all the rest of it, then even just a case of keeping up with the Russians, the US are going to be looking into those things. At the end of the day, imagine if the Russians kind of made some breakthrough to do with remote viewing where you could connect your consciousness directly to a craft and, and control the craft without any kind of a control surface other than using your mind. Then the US would be completely leapfrogged because the US would have uh, the, the adversary there, the Russians, would have a better technology than the US. And who's going to be to blame for that? It's going to be organizations like the CIA. Why didn't you look into it? And really, they're not going to say, oh, well, we thought it was all a bit too weird, so we just didn't pursue that particular line of investigation. I don't think that's what's going to happen. The CIA, as, as Jim Semivan is saying there, um, they're going to be looking into all aspects of basically all things to see if they can get a one-up on their adversaries. And um, the fact is that that is going to include things like um, you know weird events, high strangeness, UFOs, uh, paranormal uh, goings-on, just to see if there's anything to it. And just even if they don't actually get any results, they're still going to have programs to look into those things. Now, you could look at that a couple of different ways. One way of looking at that is that the US government are taking things like, um, you know, very strange goings on seriously, UFOs seriously, they're actually investigating these things, um, which gives credibility to those areas of investigation. That's one way to look at it. The other way is that they may not actually be looking at it because there's any credibility there, but just purely because they have to as a kind of a one-upmanship thing against the Russians. If the Russians are looking into a specific area, the US are definitely going to do that as well. So some of the areas, if you hear that the CIA have had a program to look into a certain thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that that program you know, that was looking into this particular topic, that means that this topic's a huge deal and it's, you know, it's not necessarily the case. It could just be that they were looking into it because they had to look into it because adversaries were doing so. And I can't remember who I heard talking about this recently. It might have been Tim McMillan. But that's basically how the US uh, broke down the Soviet Union by convincing them to waste massive amounts of money developing things that were just basically a wild goose chase. So I think that's an important point that you have to bear in mind with these things that sometimes they will just look into a certain area just because they have to do to keep up with the Russians because they're also looking at that area. Um, and there's always those possibilities that those wild goose chases are, are, are being uh, created as well. But yeah, complicated area, very, very complicated. And the whole intelligence community in the US is, is an area that um, you know I'm still trying to learn a lot about. So as I say, um, go and go back to that John Ramirez interview soon to check that out properly. Uh, but just to wrap up on this, um, Nap also says there, um, does anyone know the full picture? What if we're property? Uh, presumably talking about what if we're property of some other intelligence civilization out there. And uh, Jim Semivan replies to that, I don't think anybody knows the complete true picture. I agree with Kelleher that UFOs are a lot more than nuts and bolts. There's a psychic and biological element 
that's when it becomes high strangeness and scary so that's very interesting and he also goes on to say talking about um some of the stranger elements of uh, the ufo phenomenon and um you know the kind of things that have become more a part of the conversation since skinwalkers at the pentagon um and he says ufos exist and everything else associated with them exists we just don't know what their intentions or capabilities Plus, recent developments in quantum mechanics. Reality is just a lot different than we think it is. It's just energy patterns. Does materialism even exist? We have spooky action at a distance, Einstein and entanglement, and the universe isn't real until it's observed. Mind and consciousness plays a huge role in all of this. Lou Elizondo told him this will fall into the nexus between quantum mechanics and consciousness. I think this is very, very strange, and I don't know how most people would react to it. Probably not very well. And uh, George Knapp says, we may never know. And uh, Jim Semivan replies, and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. In some respects, I don't think I want to know. Valet in Passport to Magonia said, you can put all these scientists together and you're not going to come up with anything. It's like taking an iPhone up to a cow, which is the little quote that I mentioned earlier, and trying to explain how the technology works. This is what may be going on now. And that's, um, again, very interesting. And he actually mentions just after that another uh, little snippet, which is, it's like how insects and animals don't recognize the human universe. Like if dogs and cats were running through a library, they would have no idea what books or libraries are and they'd be running directly through it. And there's a whole nother reality all around us that we don't have the ability to see or interact with and it seems to be peaking inside our reality. I told someone once that the phenomenon comes close, it teases us, it cajoles us, it lies to us, but you can never take it home to meet the parents. It won't allow you to do that. There's no formal introduction. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, that, that particular idea there of the, uh, the dogs and cats running through a library, that, that really kind of stuck with me. Because it's like I said about the iPhone and the cow. I just think those are interesting analogies, and the fact that they've chosen uh, those is quite it's quite interesting concept, isn't it? We may be those dogs and cats running through that library, and we just have no our brains just are not capable of understanding what this library is at all. And you know, it's something that I've been talking about a little bit on the podcast recently. If we are dealing with something that advanced you know, another extraterrestrial intelligence that is a million years advanced of us, which is a million years sounds crazy. Like when I was saying earlier, the James Webb telescope is a million miles away from Earth. You just can't even, that's part of what I'm saying. The human brain can't even really wrap, make any sense of, um, you know, of, of, um, of what that means, like a million miles. I can just about picture a mile, maybe 10 miles, 50 miles, but after that it gets hazy. A million miles is just way outside of my comprehension. And is it that the phenomenon is always going to be that bit out of reach? You know, as best we try to make our, you know, get our heads around it, maybe we'll never understand it. And I think that's what George Knapp is saying there. Perhaps, you know, we're incapable of understanding it. But I'll tell you what, 
it's certainly interesting to try to get our heads around it. Anyway, so if you want to hear more about that, I would definitely recommend to go and check out the whole thing. At the end of the day, I'm not really a big fan of the whole pay to listen to an interview format. I like to do it where it's free for everybody. And if you want to support the podcast on Patreon, for example, you can do, but it's always going to be free for anyone who, who doesn't want to or is not in a position to support on patreon don't worry because you can listen to it anyway that, that that's out there the information i want to be available to as many people as can get it so i don't go down that particular route but you know what fair play to george knapp he puts the time in he puts the work in and if he wants to charge for uh, his work then fair play to him so it's not my approach but I get why why people do that. And at the end of the day, I support a lot of people on Patreon, other podcasters, researchers, and things like that. People like Joe Merger, I mentioned earlier on. I've supported Joe Merger on and off on Patreon over the last year. Um, and it's, he provides a really valuable service. And if we want, you know, the the way I look at that is is the the people who are actively putting the work in to create good information at the moment, if we support them, via platforms like patreon you know you could be setting up the next generation of you know big name ufo researchers and podcasters and content creators or whatever you want to classify people as you know i would like to think that andy from that ufo podcast you know can be um, a full-time ufo researcher and podcaster you know in the next few years and you know maybe even myself i would i would absolutely do that if i ever get the opportunity to to have enough um sort of backing and support from people on things like patreon i would be a full-time ufo uh, you know podcaster i would make films about ufos i would go and do research and um, you know and actually go and investigate things but it all comes down to unfortunately time and you know i've got to pay the bills i'm definitely not a wealthy person by any stretch of the imagination so by all means go check out joe merger's transcription of the coast to coast am interview with jim semivan there um, and if you get some use out of it go and support joe on patreon you know and um, if you really want to go the whole hog sign up to coast to coast am support george knapp's work and listen to the interview and obviously anybody who supports my podcast on patreon thank you very much because you're helping along that journey as well and you know let's see where this thing goes anyway getting back to speaking of doing research and uh you know getting back in and things to go and do real good work in this topic um the signal dan and Vinny from disclosure team um are off to columbia very soon to film a documentary called phenomenology tongue twister there but part of the reason that links in i guess is because dan actually got um funding from the ufo community essentially to go and do this it was a last minute trip and um the opportunity came up and i think it was a gofundme page that dan started uh, to basically cover his costs to get over to columbia so it's almost like a crowdsourced effort to get dan out there to columbia um which is great to see people coming together to do that because it's exactly what i said because of everybody's willingness to put a few quid in to support him on his way now dan is off to columbia to actually go and do this um research with Vinny as part of this documentary and we're all going to get to see that documentary so it's what i like to see 
it's proper as they say boots on the ground research you know they're actually going out there to to investigate uh, a, a fantastic you know possibility of this mystery around this mountain and uh, the documentary i'm very much looking forward to it so the documentary itself is the idea of ashley cowie who is a scottish author adventurer photographer and broadcaster and um he basically did a, a series of highly acclaimed lectures uh, on the International Science Festival circuit over the years, has written several books about his historical discoveries, and um, this documentary that he's put together, Phenomenology, um, centres around a mountain which is very close to where Ashley actually lives in Colombia, um, which has for hundreds of years been the centre of reports of strange lights and mysterious sightings of UFOs. And... The key things that I really like about Ashley's approach to putting this together is that he's including skeptics, scientists, normal members of the public all in one. He's really kind of gone on and on when I've heard him in interviews about how it's not going to be packed with like filler, random footage. It's all going to be proper footage and... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be uh, one of these kind of like shock documentaries. It's just going to be, um, you know, a focused on getting real good information and, uh, you know, uh, a mature approach to, to reporting on the topic, which is what, what I like to see. Um, and essentially, I think what he's actually trying to do is get to the bottom of what is behind this this uh, phenomenon that's being observed on the mountain but also examining the sort of role of our individual beliefs and our preconceived notions of what's going on and how that affects our interpretations of the phenomena that's actually being witnessed he's talked about how the groundskeeper um in in their um I think the groundskeeper of their property or a nearby property um, describes it as being one thing and then the local shopkeeper describes it as being something else and then the guy who's operating the camera describes it as being something else and it, it, he's really trying to dig into how your preconceived concepts of what you think is going on affect what you actually witness and what they're going to be doing is going out with really really good quality 4k cameras and drones and, and they're going to actually go to the sites where some of these lights have been witnessed in the past and um, he's apparently got photographs that have actually been taken but never seen by the public which is going to be part of this documentary um, and we're talking about kind of plasma-ish lights for the most part from what i gather but some of those plasmaish lights have apparently had humanoid forms which is interesting and also some more kind of classic disc shape objects as well which i guess you would describe more as a ufo um you know potentially craft type of shape objects so just really fascinated to see how that goes on really and you should definitely check out that ufo podcast for an interview with uh, ashley cowie and uh, i think he also did one recently with um the signal and vinnie and also last week i actually did an interview with vinnie um which was uh, a full hour of me and vinnie just talking and um various different topics came up but we also discussed a bit of how vinnie actually got involved with the documentary uh, because as i mentioned there dan uh, we know how Dan got involved, but I hadn't actually really heard anybody talking to Vinny about how he got involved with it. So I really wanted to have him on to discuss that and discuss, you know, a little bit about um, what, what they've got planned for while they're out there. So if you want to listen to that as well, you can go back and check out last week's episode uh, that I did with Vinny. But I'm really glad they're going out there because 
Me personally, I really struggle with traveling. So when I heard about this, I kind of even contemplated maybe trying to go myself. Um, but to be honest with you, the, the traveling side of it would just be a nightmare for me. Um, I get really bad uh, motion sickness, like car sickness. Um, and uh, going on a plane is not really my ideal thing to do, especially not then jumping on all various other forms. Of, I know that sounds a bit like a pathetic excuse or whatever, but it's actually quite, I get quite sick from uh, traveling in cars. Weirdly, it's fine when I'm in my own car. If I'm driving, I'm okay. But um, as many of you might know, I, I used to do music stuff and I actually... Um, well, I still do music stuff, but I used to play in bands, basically playing the drums. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to do quite a bit of touring around Europe and that kind of thing uh, for a few years. And um, the touring, I just found an absolute nightmare because when you're on a tour bus, um, you, I get really, really sick. So you'd be on a tour bus potentially driving from like, um, I don't know, like Calais to Portugal or something like that. You know, you're talking about 20 hours of being on that bus. And if you're just the whole time trying not to throw up, you can imagine how when that goes on for three months, it's not very fun. <laughs> you know, All the rest of the band would be hanging around playing PlayStation and drinking champagne. And um, I definitely wasn't able to do that because if you're trying not to throw up, drinking champagne is generally not what you want to do um so yeah for me and traveling don't mix very well so um i definitely wouldn't particularly like to go and travel to such a, a far away place if i went to Colombia, it'd probably take me about two or three days just to feel okay again after i arrive so you get the idea um me and traveling don't mix very well um but i'm just really glad that we've got Vinny and dan you know if i had to hand pick a couple of people that would be great in that context they'd be right at the top of the list so i'm glad that they're going um so and i, and I really can't wait it's another exciting thing that's that's going to happen within the ufo topic or uap topic um this year so just yet another exciting thing coming up um to look forward to so I think I've rambled on enough for today. So um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. And uh, again, if you've got to this stage in the show, you are probably a hardcore listener of the podcast. So thank you very much for sticking around. You've obviously, uh, well, I would hope that you've enjoyed the episode if you've listened this far. So thank you very much. And um, don't forget, you can go and support the podcast on Patreon for a couple of quid a month, a couple of pounds a month, or a couple of dollars, a month, depends where you are in the world, a couple of your local currency a month, um, you can get early access to the shows. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the more support we get on the podcast, um, the better content I can put out, the more time I can devote to it. And I would love for some point in the distant future to be able to devote a larger part of my life to looking into this topic. Um but obviously the only way I can do that is if I can still pay all my bills and things at the same time. So the, the support on Patreon really, really helps. Thank you to everybody who's already signed up to the Patreon. Um, and um, yeah, you can jump on patreon.com forward slash UFO thinker if you, if you are interested in supporting the podcast in that way. If not, don't worry about it. I'll still see you next week, as always, with another episode. So till next time, take it easy, stay curious, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.